Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's so good to be with you all this morning. As Brian said, we're going to be going through Jonah for the next few weeks. And this week, as, as Brian had said, is, is a very special week because it is our first week of, of summertime for West Village Church. And that means, uh, as Brian had mentioned, that the, the kids who normally get dismissed at this time for Sunday school actually get to stay with us and get to be a part of big church, I guess, and uh, get to join us. So if you see them, say that uh, you're glad that they're here. And kids, I've been told by Miss Emily that there's even some sermon notes for you to fill out. And if you do fill them out and hand them back, that you even get a prize. So make sure that you grab those out and take your sermon notes. If you don't have them yet, you can head out to the back door behind Ralph, and uh, you can find sermon notes there. Parents, if you want to do it too, go ahead. I don't care. I want to share a story with you all about a time when I was younger. As far as I can remember, um, my family and I would go to uh, Sandbanks Provincial Park in Picton, Ontario, and go camping there every year. I don't think I missed a single summer of camping at Sandbanks since I was born, maybe one or two at most. And it was a great time. If you've been there, you can picture the beach and the campsites and the water and the, the white sand, and it's a gorgeous place. And I have so many great memories uh, growing up there and playing there and being in the water and the sand and getting way too dirty, as some of the parents experienced on Sunday at baptism. Every year we would go, and if, you, if you've been there, you can kind of picture the way that Sandbanks is laid out. But if you haven't, I'll try and paint you the picture. So when you go there and you walk out onto the beach, you're met kind of with a horseshoe, if you can picture that. You're right in the center of the horseshoe. And then out to the left side, you have this kind of um, rocky, grassy point that you can see. And you can actually walk along the beach there. And it's a gorgeous little secluded place. It's very nice. And then out to the right side, you have this further point. So maybe it's a crooked horseshoe. Uh, but you have this further point that you can see kind of off to the distance. And it's more trees and foresty area. I remember one year when I was growing up, um, my dad had told me that that point way off to the right was Toronto. Now, I'm in Picton, so you can't actually see Toronto from the beach. But my dad swears that he never said that, but I'm pretty sure he might have said, you know, Toronto is that direction, or there's a similar point that you can see uh, on Lake Ontario from Toronto. I'm not sure exactly, but me and my sister both were convinced that my dad had told us that that point was Toronto. Now, if you know where Picton is, it's near Belleville. It's hours and hours east of Toronto, so you, there's no way that you can see it. But when you're young, when you're a kid, you kind of just hold on to those things that your parents tell you, or what you think they told you at least, right? Your parents tell you something, and there's no reason not to believe them, so you hold on to that, and that's what's true. So as we would go back year after year, I'd go to the beach and I'd look out and I'd enjoy the nice view and the nice horizon of the water. It almost looks like you're looking out into the ocean. I'd look over to the point and that was Toronto. I never thought twice about it because that's what my dad told me. Well, one year, my sister's boyfriend at the time, now my brother-in-law, came camping with us and it was a lot of fun to have him there. And I don't remember exactly who brought it up or how it got brought up, but it got brought up that we believed that the point was Toronto. My brother-in-law thought we were joking at first, and after a little bit, he realized that we were telling the truth, and we genuinely believed that we could see Toronto from the point. Well, after he thought, you know, maybe we were crazy, he started to laugh at us and make fun of us, and to this day, it still gets brought up. 
He said, there's no way that that can be Toronto. We're not even close to Toronto. So my brother-in-law had to dismantle this idea that from standing in Sandbanks, I could see Toronto. Well, over the next four weeks, we're going to go through the book of Jonah together. Just like how I swore that I could see Toronto from Sandbanks, if you grew up in the church or uh, have heard about um, the book of Jonah at all, I'm going to assume that when I say Jonah, your mind goes to Jonah and the whale. Am I right? Every child's book and most Sunday school messages growing up read Jonah and the whale. And we have assimilated this idea of Jonah and the whale and the whale as kind of the main idea of the book of Jonah. Well, just like my brother-in-law had to dismantle this idea that I could see Toronto from Picton in Sandbanks, over the next four weeks, we are going to dismantle and take apart this idea that the book of Jonah has anything to do with a whale. We are going to search for the true story of Jonah. Over the next four weeks, we will be going through our series of Jonah and looking for the heart of the passage, which is the endless compassion of God. Let me pray, and uh, we can get into the book. God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the space that we get to come uh, and gather as your body, as your church, and worship you. I thank you for the time that we get to, to come to know who you are and how much you love us. And I pray that as this morning, as we dive into your word, that we would... Um, yeah, be met by the Holy Spirit, and he would guide us through your word. And as I preach, God, I pray that I would speak truth and that our hearts would be ready to receive the truth that you have prepared for us this morning. And I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, you can open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. It is right between Obadiah and Micah in the Minor Prophets. We're going to look at three things today in chapter one. Number one, we're going to look at who is Jonah. It's a pretty big question. It's going to be the first one we ask. Number two is going to be sort of a question or point of, is Jonah a hero? And number three, we're going to look at God's compassion on the sailors. So read Jonah one with me, starting in verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. We're going to stop there. So point one, who is Jonah? Our first question is, who is Jonah? And the very first thing that this book does is answer that question. The first hint we get is, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And if you've spent any time before in the books of the prophets, the minor prophets, or the major prophets, you might recognize these words, the word of the Lord came to, or that kind of general idea. So right away, we know that we are in a book of a prophet. And it would be natural to assume that after reading these words, and since it's a prophet, it would probably be written like many of the other prophets. It would make the most sense, but unfortunately, this is not the way that Jonah works. And this is the first uh, of many very unique things that the book of Jonah brings us. 
Jonah was a prophet, and this book certainly belongs in the, in the kind of sphere of prophets, minor prophets. Um, but if, and if you read other prophets, you'll see the word of the Lord came to, insert, you know, name of prophet. And even if you just flip, you know, one, one page in my Bible, maybe two pages in yours, you'll see Micah, and you'll see the word of the Lord that came to Micah. And then the rest of the book will be the prophecy that came to that prophet, whether depending on what they were prophesying towards or to or for, the book would be the prophecy that came to that prophet. But that's not the way that Jonah works. There are a lot of different types of literature all throughout the Bible. There is prophecy like Daniel and Ezekiel, and again, like Micah. There is historical narrative uh, like Ezra and Nehemiah. There is uh, parable literature, like the parable of the prodigal son. There is poetic literature, much like the Psalms. And there is wisdom, like Ecclesiastes. So in kind of all of that, where does Jonah fit in? Well, some people think that the book of Jonah should be considered a parable. Because Jonah uses a lot of satire, and metaphor, and sarcasm, and even humor to make a point, to make a certain point that the author wants to get across. The problem with Jonah being parable is that parables were made-up stories to serve a certain point. And Jonah is not a made-up story. Jonah was a real person who experienced these real things that we read about today. So it doesn't quite fit into parable Some people think that Jonah was historical narrative. Some people have a hard time with thinking that Jonah is a historical narrative because, again, it uses uh, satire and humor to make a point, and satire and humor don't really fit into historical narratives. Then some people, again, think it's defined by prophecy, but again, Jonah just isn't quite written like other prophecies. I don't think that it's really important to kind of put Jonah inside of a a particular box, Um, but I do think that the book of Jonah most closely relates to historical narrative. Think of the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. Jonah actually fits in so well to this historical narrative that the only other place that we learn about Jonah is in 2 Kings. If we keep reading just a little bit more, or reread a little bit. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. If you read in 2 Kings 14, we read about King Jeroboam II, who was the king of Israel at the time, and how Jonah, the son of Amittai, so same Jonah, was prophesying to him. The book of Jonah happened shortly after this prophecy uh, to King Jeroboam, or maybe even just around the same time Um, So it would fit really well into this historical narrative. If you were reading through Chronicles and you came by the story of Jonah, you probably wouldn't bat an eye. Next, we see verse 2, which is the prophecy. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So God is calling Jonah to go to Nineveh to proclaim his wrath. As a kid, right, hearing about this story and reading it in books, I knew that Nineveh was a bad place and there was 
certainly bad people there. But what I didn't know or what I didn't learn was that the Nineveh was not just a bad place with bad people. Nineveh was literally the worst place with the worst kind of people. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. If you think you might recognize Assyria or don't know what that is, Assyria or Assyrians were the people who took the Israelites captive and put them in bondage. The same Assyrians that that took over Israel and ruined their lives, or much of it, destroyed the cities and destroyed the country. And Jonah was called to go to Nineveh right around the same time, or maybe just even after, Assyrians actually came in and took the Israelites captive. So you can kind of understand why Jonah might be hesitant to go to the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, but we'll get into that in a little bit. With that, that concludes our seminary lesson for this morning. Uh, and now that you guys know everything there is to know about the book of Jonah and who Jonah was, uh, let's, let's keep going. Look at verses 3 to 12 with me. Verse 3 But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break apart. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of, of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Our second point or question today is, Is Jonah the hero? As we continue to dismantle or take apart this idea of Jonah and the whale, one idea that we need to address is Jonah's character. I remember reading stories of Jonah and the whale and reading about this great prophet who loved God and was a hero to the Israelites and to the Ninevites. And since it had been a little while since I had actually read a children's book on Jonah or been in any Sunday school classes about it, while I was studying for my sermon, I decided I would look up on YouTube a quick search of, you know, Book of Jonah children's story. And sure enough, everything that came up was Jonah and the whale. Some 
Some said Jonah and the great fish. But every single video that I watched pictured Jonah as this great hero who was noble and mighty and heroic. He was a good person and selfless. But is this really true of Jonah? This passage here gives us a great insight into Jonah's character. Was Jonah a hero? Was he just afraid of Tarshish? Or of Nineveh? Did he want to see the world come to know the love of the Father? Well, so far, what we've looked at Jonah, God gives Jonah his prophecy. And the very next verse is, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. There is no pause in there. There's no pondering, no thinking it over. Jonah just immediately decides, nope, sorry, God, I can't do that. He said, I'm not only going to not do that, but I'm actually going to go as far as I humanly possibly can away from Nineveh. Nineveh was uh, almost directly east from northern Israel, where Jonah would have been living. So Nineveh, you got Nineveh and, and, and Israel. And Tarshish is to believed to have been in Spain. So if you can think of the, the world map there, you have Tarshish, or sorry, you have Nineveh, you have Israel, and then you have Tarshish way over here across the entire Mediterranean Sea in Spain. It would have been about 5,000 kilometers in the wrong direction. Jonah didn't just go the wrong direction. He said, I'm going to go to the opposite end of the world, or what they would have thought was the opposite end of the world at the time. Does this sound like the actions of a good man? Is this something that you would read in the story of a hero? So Jonah decides that he's going to give his best shot at fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He heads south down to Joppa, finds a boat, gets a one-way ticket to the other side of the world. As Jonah attempts to flee, God sends a massive storm their way, a storm so great that they thought the ship would be literally torn to, to pieces. The sailors are terrified for their lives. And where's Jonah? Jonah's fast asleep under the ship, not caring. The, the crew of the ship asked Jonah who he was, and Jonah says that he is a Hebrew, and he worships the God that created everything. The men asked Jonah what to do, and he says, just toss me overboard. Now this is really important. Remember that Jonah was a Hebrew, a prophet, and a follower of God. As these things, Jonah would have had the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, completely memorized front to back. He would have had a great understanding of God's character. So as someone who knows the character of God, would Jonah really believe that the best thing for him to do was just to be tossed overboard? Forget about Jonah even offering to jump off the ship himself. Jonah says, toss me overboard, as if he were a sacrifice to some angry god or idol. God is certainly a god of wrath and a god of judgment, 
But God cares more about the heart than someone's actions. God cares more about the heart of someone than their actions. Jonah knew that he could have repented and turned back to the Lord. And if he had done it, it would have solved everything. It would have calmed the storm. And it would have saved the sailors from essentially committing murder. If Jonah knew that the best and easiest option was to just go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness, then why not take it? Why put his own life on the line? Again, are these the actions of that Sunday school hero I remember learning about? Are these the actions of a good man? There's a picture that I want to show you guys. It's called The Creation of Adam, painted by Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. The reason that I want to show it to you is because it does a great job at showing man's relationship with God. Look at God on the left-hand side, your right. He's stretching out his hand as far as he can. And then look at man on the left. He's just barely stretching out his hand, putting the bare minimum effort in. It's important to understand the character of Jonah early in this series that we're going to go through. And I wanted to spend some time on this today so that we can kind of set the scene for the three chapters to come. As I read Jonah and prepared for the series, I started to notice a trend that we're going to see over the next three chapters. I started to see this trend of Jonah doing the bare minimum, going against the Lord, then God showing his endless compassion and Jonah kind of correcting himself and going back with the Lord. This pattern really reminds me of this painting that we have here. God on the right, stretching out his hand completely full of compassion. And Jonah on the left, barely stretching out his hand, just putting in the bare minimum effort, if if any effort at all. And as I was thinking about that, it got me thinking a little bit more. And I felt like I might have even recognized this pattern from something in the past or something else in the Bible. It reminded me a lot of the the Israelites' relationship with God. The Israelites were constantly sinning and running away from God, creating false idols, then... God, in his endless compassion, would save them, come to their rescue. The Israelites would turn back to God for a while just to run away from him again. If you read the book of Judges and go through it front to back, you'll see this pattern repeated over and over. Israel, on the left, barely reaching out to God. And God, on the right, with his arms stretched fully extended, reaching out and loving on the Israelites. As I was going over this and thinking about it, I started to notice that this trend that we're seeing in Jonah, we see in the Israelites, it started to remind me of my own life. I realized that I am constantly running from what God has me to do. 
from what the things that the Lord calls me to, I'm running in the opposite direction. I've certainly ran from the Lord and I've certainly had to learn the hard way that God is in complete control no matter what I do or how far I run. I constantly let down God, choosing myself over him. I realized that I could probably put my name in Jonah 1 in the story and it would be extremely fitting. So I actually, I did it. It says, Caleb flees the presence of the Lord. I replaced my name through Jonah 1. And I hope this isn't heretical. I don't think it is. But if you read this paper, if you read this story with my name in replace of Jonah's, no, I didn't, you know, flee to Tarshish. No, I didn't hop on a boat and get thrown overboard by some sailors. But if you read this story with my name in it, this story of, of character and of motive, you could say, yeah, that could be true. I certainly can. I'm willing to bet that if you read Jonah and put your name in replace of his, you might be able to relate with it as well. I'm willing to bet that everyone here, almost everyone here, can put themselves in the shoes of Jonah. Look at the painting again. Myself on the left, I'm just barely reaching out to God. I'm putting the bare minimum effort in. But God on the right, always stretching out completely, covering me in love and grace and endless compassion. Let's keep reading in Jonah 1, verses 13 to 16. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Our third point for the day, God's compassion on the sailors. The first thing to note about these few verses is that they're actually very unique within the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we read a lot about conversion and salvation. All throughout the four Gospels, we see hundreds and thousands of people flocking to see Jesus, to hear the words that he has to say, and to, to witness his miracles. And we read about their lives being transformed and them coming to know the Lord as their personal Lord and Savior. All throughout the New Testament, we see stories like Saul on the road to Damascus. We see his divine intervention in his conversion to come to the Lord. Just last Sunday was Baptism Sunday. If you missed it, you certainly missed out. It was an incredible Sunday, as Pastor Brian had mentioned. My heart was so filled with joy to see the young people publicly proclaim their salvation, their faith to us, their, their church body. It was, it was such an incredible Sunday. And last week, Pastor Brian preached from Acts 8, and we read about an Ethiopian eunuch who came to know Jesus as Lord 
and wanted to be baptized. Conversion and salvation stories are incredibly common in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, however, conversion stories are more unique. Most of them are Israelites and Jews finding their faith and coming back to the Lord. Read about the faith of Moses, Noah, Abraham, and others like that. It's rare to read about a non-Israelite coming to a saving faith, a saving knowledge of the Lord. These few verses we read in the end of Jonah 1 here are one of those rare instances. We read about a group of sailors who, based on the very little info that we have of them, are non-Israelites, are Gentiles, and they come to a saving knowledge of who God is. Jonah tells the sailors to throw him into the sea, but they know that if you throw a man overboard in the middle of the sea, there's really one way that he can go. So the sailors are terrified for their lives, but they don't want to be held accountable for the blood of Jonah. They want to be held accountable for murdering Jonah. So the sailors, they threw away most of their possessions so that they could lighten the ship. We see that in verse 5. Then, after Jonah says, throw me overboard, they don't listen to him, and they give their all into rowing through the storm to dry land. But that doesn't work, and we see that in verse 13. They were out of options, and they were going to die. So as a last-ditch effort, they cry out to God, asking him not to hold them accountable for Jonah's death, and they throw Jonah overboard. They hurl Jonah overboard. You see, the sailors came to understand something that Jonah continued to ignore. Their only hope was to cry out to God. Jonah's selfish act of trying to flee from the presence of the Lord led to the salvation of the sailors. God used a selfish, defiant Jonah to make himself known to the sailors. When the storm came upon the boat, the sailors' first thought was, let's go to our idols. Let's go to our man-made gods. And they let them down. They didn't have the power to calm the storm. They didn't have any power at all. And when the lots landed on Jonah, the sailors asked who Jonah was. Jonah told them that he was in fact a Hebrew, and that he served the almighty God. The one true God who not only controls the land and the sea, but actually created it. The sailors realized that their man-made idols were useless. But if God, if Yahweh, could actually control the sea, then it was certainly feasible that he could have created it too. Verse 16 says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Then the men feared the Lord. The men gave faith to the Lord. Can you think of the time that you were the most afraid that you've ever been? Maybe it was a car crash that you were in. Maybe a loved one that you know was injured. Maybe it was even the most recent storm that hit Ottawa. 
the storm that tore trees from the ground, that ripped shingles off roofs and left complete homes utterly destroyed. I've, I've seen many movies where the main character is put into some of this similar situation, like some of the ones I just mentioned, and he finds himself fighting for everything he can do. He does all that he can do to save his own life. And when that doesn't work, he cries out to God and says, God, if you get me out of this situation, I promise I'll do whatever you want. I'll stop lying. I'll stop cheating. I'll stop stealing whatever it is. I'll give you whatever you want. Have you ever been in a situation or so afraid that you have cried out to God, promising him anything just to get out of the situation? The time that I was most afraid... I was interning at a church in Cambridge. No, it wasn't just the interning. One summer uh, during college, I was interning, and on my way home, I got hit by a car. I was living on campus at the time at, at Heritage, and the church where I was interning was just up the road. So every day, I biked to work. It worked out really well. I had the same routine every day. I woke up. I went to church. I went to the church. I went to work. I did my work, 4.30 hit, I clocked out, I got on my bike, and I rode home. There was even a bike lane on my side of the road, so I could just go right to the road and ride down the hill, and it was super simple. Well, one day, what seemed to be any other day at the time, same routine, get to work, do my job, 4.30 hits, I clock out, I get ready to bike home. As I get to the road, there was um, there was a motorcycle coming up the hill in my bike lane. So I couldn't use my bike lane to go down the hill. Already flustered by this motorcycle that was in my lane, meant for bicycles, not motorcycles, I decide, okay, well, I'll just cross the street and I'll, I'll use the bike lane on the other side of the road. Um, so I'll just cross the street and it'll be super simple. Traffic was stopped at the top of the hill the hill kind of went like this. Traffic was stopped at the, at the top of the hill, and I couldn't hear any traffic coming up the hill. So I said, it's, it's perfect timing. The second that I pedaled out across the street, I was hit by a car. A car decided to cut across traffic on the other side in the middle lane. He was racing up the hill going 60 kilometers an hour, and he didn't even have time to hit his brakes before he hit me. I went flying up in the air, bike crumpled on the ground, tumbling down. It was quite the day, and something that was incredible at the day was the Lord showed me how much he loved me, his great love, and his great power. And I have to swear by, there must have been an angel with a giant baseball glove ready to catch me. I can't tell you why. It wasn't worse than it was, other than it was a complete miracle from the Lord. Within one minute of being hit, there were eight medically trained professionals on scene ready to take care of me. Within 10 minutes, there was a fire truck, then there was an ambulance, then there were two police cruisers on scene to make sure that I was alive and okay. To make a long story short, after they realized you know, that I wasn't dead, I am here today, after they realized that I was okay, they were sure that every bone in my leg would have been completely shattered. 
After some tests and some x-rays, they realized that the only thing wrong with me was a torn ACL. I should have been dead, but I wasn't. At least, as a bare minimum, every bone in my leg should have been shattered, but they weren't. All I had was a torn ACL. Now, as a pastoral intern, I would love to tell you that the first words out of my mouth were something pure, something good, but that would be a lie. I am human, and that day I said some potty words. As I hit the ground, though, I was worried about the witness that I would leave to the people around me. Like I said, eight medically trained professionals and then all of these other ambulances and fire trucks and police that came. And I was worried about the witness that I would leave. Now, would these people really care if I was swearing? Probably not. They see a grown man get hit by a car going 60 kilometers an hour. They're not going to be worried about the words coming out of their mouth. But I was worried about the witness that I would leave. Being in shock, all the adrenaline pumping through my body, barely being able to process what just happened to me. I was laying there on the street. All I could muster was, please God. Please God. Please God. I couldn't think. I could barely speak. I'm telling you, I was afraid. Laying on the street, being held by a nurse who just happened to be walking by, just under my breath, please, God. Please, God. It's all I could get out. I just kept repeating that for what felt like hours, but was more likely a couple of minutes. Please, God. Please, God. The sailors understood this. They knew what it meant to cry out to God when they were most afraid. The sailors did a complete 180 from their man-made idols and cried out to the one true God who created the land and the sea. Jonah was given a task. He was called to go to Nineveh and to proclaim the wrath of the Lord, and he messed that up. He went west and messed everything up for the sailors that he came in contact to with as well. God used that, didn't he? Jonah couldn't have planned this salvation if he was the smartest, most holy person in the entire world. But God, in his loving sovereignty, used Jonah in his mess to show the sailors who he was. And God used that so that he was able to save the sailors. If you feel like right now your ship is sinking or being torn apart by some mighty storm, if the world is too much, life is too scary or too stressful, the world is too dark or too grim, and all you can do is cry out, please God, then cry out to him. If you don't know today how much God loves you, or maybe you know that Jesus died and rose again, but all you can get out of you is please God. Then cry as loud as you can. God's compassion is endless. You are not outside of God's endless compassion. 
Just the same, each and every one of us can put ourselves in Jonah's shoes, can't we? There is going to be a time in your life when you are determined to run as far away from the Lord as humanly possible. You might even get on a plane and go to the literal other side of the world. All you can do is just bring your mess into the lives of everyone around you. I'm telling you, you're not outside of God's endless compassion. God is loving, and he is perfectly sovereign. He can and will use you even in your greatest sins. You are not outside of God's endless compassion. Let me pray, and Pastor Brian's going to come for a time of communion. Jesus, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the chance that we get to be, to come together today as your body, as your children, as your people. We get to come and worship your name today. God, I pray that as today we, we, we leave here, we go into this time of communion, we go home. God, when the world gets too much, when life gets too stressful, that you would help us just cry out to you, please, God. If all we can get out is those two words, God, I pray that you would be faithful, that you would hear our cry, and that you would help us through this week. God, I pray as we go into these next few chapters in Jonah's over the week that, that you would prepare our hearts for what your word has to say, and that you would transform our lives into more like your son. I pray that you would ready our hearts for this time of communion, and I thank you for the time that we get to remember the sacrifice that your son made. I pray this in the mighty, wonderful, and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.